1: Wait a minute, there's something going on here. And here. And here. That one man and only one man can solve. The world is in turmoil. Frenzied diplomats turn to their computers and come up with the one individual on earth who can snatch victory from defeat. Clint. Flint. And here he is, the total man. Our man, Flint. James Coburn. Don't let that sleepy look fool you girls. Our man, Flint, can handle everything. Lives it up like mad. Private barber, personal valet. He fences for breakfast. Karate's for lunch. dances for dinner, kisses anytime, visits the most sensational places, and knows just the right thing to do for unexpected company like boss Lee Jacob.
2: Lower your hand slowly and smile. What? If he senses hostility towards me, he'll rip you apart now.
1: And when our man Flint discovers a spy like gorgeous Gila Golan close to home, his superb training and instant reflexes take over. You won't believe me
2: <laughs> You try me.
1: And this is Dr. Schneider. Schneider, the man behind it all. His plot is diabolical but irresistible. My sole purpose in life is to bring pleasure to my companions. Mention pleasure and Flint is right on the job. This can change 65 weapons,
2: you know. This has 82 different functions, 83 if you wish to light a cigar.
1: He's as much at home in the Casbah as he is in the boudoir. Or anywhere else, for that matter. Surprises keep building, the women get wilder, but whatever happens, Flint can handle it.
0: Okay, listeners, welcome, and you are tuned in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and I'm sitting here in the studio, in sparkling downtown Clearwater, and I'm gazing through this giant window at, at my producer's, Bill, Bill, how you doing tonight? <laughs> He's got to turn his mic on. Are, are we live? <laughs> yeah, I think we're live. That's my line. I'm the one that's supposed to say that because you trick me every once in a while. Anyway, hey, everybody run your computers and Google Tantalk1340.com and you can see us live streamed on the internet across the world, around the globe, even in the North Pole and the South Pole if you have access to uh, Wi-Fi. Anyway, any rate, we're live. Also, hey, be sure to check out our website, GolfStreamMotorsports.com. That's GolfStreamMotorsports.com getting pretty detailed right now so we got all kinds of cool stuff on there and more stuff coming okay and don't forget our podcast which you can also access through our website golfstreammotorsports.com and don't forget the podcast which is nostalgic radio and cars at any rate we got a great show for you tonight we got a very fascinating guest tonight okay this guy's not a race car driver he's uh not an engine builder But he's been in the car business, and his family lineage in the car industry goes way back to the 40s. So this guy's got some great stories for us. Super guy, fascinating individual, and I can't wait to have him on. All right. Hey, you got that first uh, song spinning around and around on that turntable. All right. Call me at 727-541-1741. You may be owed some money for lost value of your repaired vehicle. That's Gulfstream Motorsports, 727-541-1741. And be sure to tune into Nostalgic Radio and Cars, Wednesdays, 7 to 8 p.m. on the Talk Radio Network, a.m. 1340. Okay, we're back, and you tuned in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. And coming up, we have another commercial, and it's for our friends down on Clearwater Beach, Krabby's Beachwalk Bar and Grill. And if you would like to win a $10 gift certificate to Krabby's Beachwalk Bar and Grill, be the ninth caller this evening, the ninth caller, okay, and give us a shout here at 727-441-3000, that's 727-441-3000, the ninth caller. So guys, don't rush to the phones, because a lot of times, guys call, and hang up, then they call, and they hang up, you know, and so, hey, anyway, Alright, hey, I want to welcome a new sponsor to the radio show. Actually, it's one of my old customers, and it is just tires, okay? And they're located down here in Largo. So if you need tire repair, a plug, a patch, if you need a wheelbarrow tire, if you need a bicycle tire, if you need tire fixed on your 4x4, like I drive, or on your little sports car, like I used to drive, or... Uh, On your Econobox, which I will soon be driving. Give my friends at Just Tires a call down there at 727-585-9271. That's 727-585-9271. Mention Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and you probably will get a discount. Say hi to Terry. Terry's the boss man down there. And Russell is the guy that'll fix you up. So don't forget my friends down there at Just Tires at 727-585-9271. Just Tires. Say hi to Russell and Terry. And they're in Largo down in Clearwater Largo Road. Also, hey, you know, I want to tell you guys, every once in a while i got to fix things around my house. Well, you know what? A friend of mine and I used to do some remodeling part-time because I've got an extensive construction background as well as automotive background, as well as a real estate background, as well as my automotive appraisal business background. Anyway, you know what? Every once in a while, you're always looking for bargains to fix things and you don't want to spend a ton of money or sometimes if you're fixing something that's old, you can't always get the stuff you need because you can't find it at Home Depot or Lowe's. So you got to go to some of these used places. Well, let me tell you about Habitat for Humanities. Now, my buddy John used to go there all the time and he used to talk about it. Well, I always called his bluff and said, nah, 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 nah. Well, one day I was driving by. They're located on the corner of 49th Street and Almerton Road. And I got to tell you, Glenn and Doug that work down there at Habitat for Humanities did a super job. I mean, I bought a complete sink with some old fixtures that I needed because I had to get the hardware out of them for 20 bucks you can't beat that I mean that's a complete sink and the hardware we're talking brass fixtures the whole nine yards so give my friends Doug and Glenn a call down at Habitat for Humanities their number is 727-209-2199 that's 727-209-2199 on the corner of their their new location now it's 49th Street in Almerton so be sure and check them out and also if you got something you're getting rid of don't throw it away don't curb it just take it down to Habitat Humanities and get yourself a little write-off ticket okay At any rate, hey, if you guys are sports car guys like me and you want to know what's going on in in the sports car market as far as values and some really cool articles. Be sure to check out my friends over there at Sports Car Market Magazine, okay? Give them a shout. Well, You can't really give them a shout. You just have to go to the magazine shop and buy their magazine, okay? And I write for them every once in a while. I'll do some auction analysis reports. So they do the uh, American Car Collector and the Sports Car Market. Be sure and check them out. And of course, if you're into the vintage motorsports thing, which I am, okay? And I go to some of the vintage races. Be sure and check my friends out at Vintage Motorsports. Okay? they got a website, VintageMotorsports.com but be sure and pick up their magazine Okay, at your local Barnes and Noble or you know any really good magazine shop. We just about have our guests on the line, so we're going to roll into another commercial. Okay, and we'll be back here in a short, short. Hey, listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio Cars. I'd like to tell you about a great place to eat right on the main part of Clearwater Beach, located at three 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 South Gulfview Boulevard. Crabby's Beachwalk Bar & Grill has two floors of food, drink, and fun. They have daily specials, happy hour, and nightly entertainment. Their menu caters to seafood lovers as well as land lovers. Crabby's Beachwalk Bar & Grill, 727-608-2065. They're open in the morning for breakfast until 1 a.m. So stop by and visit my friends Turtle, Eddie, and Polly, and all the girls and staff at Crabby's Beachwalk Barn Grill. That's 727-608-2065. Mention Nostalgic Radio and Cars and you never know, you might get a free drink. That's Krabby's Beachwalk Bar and Grill on Clearwater Beach, 727-608-2065.
2: command to select 12 general prisoners convicted by courts martial and sentenced to be executed or serve lengthy prison terms for murder, rape, robbery, and other crimes of violence. And you will deliver them secretly behind enemy lines in France to undertake a mission of sabotage that could change the course of the war. The 12 men will be known as the Dirty Dozen. Lee Marvin as Major John Reisman. There's a little of Major Reisman in every man, says Marvin. Tough and unyielding, yet compassionate. I think it's the best role I've ever been asked to play. You've all volunteered for a mission which gives you just three ways to go. Either you can follow up in training and be shipped back here for immediate execution of sentence, or you can follow up in combat, in which case I will personally blow your brains out, or you can do as you're told, in which case you might just get by. Now you hold it right there. This war was not started for your private gratification, and you can be damn sure that this army isn't being run for your personal convenience either. Ernest Borgnine as General Warden. I'm tired of seeing generals portrayed as desk-bound pen pushers, says Borgnine. So I've played warden as a rough professional soldier. Robert Ryan as Colonel Everett Dasher Breed. There were officers like Breed, says Ryan, who could never suffer the rules broken or even bend a little. Major Reisler's compliments, sir. Tell
3: him one strong, You prefer to be captured or destroyed.
2: Jimmy Brown as Napoleon Jefferson. Jefferson is any man fighting for recognition against the odds, says Brown. I think I understand him pretty well. The hell! Is- John Cassavetes as Victor Franco. Says Cassavetes. Franco is a petty hoodlum forced to heroism by circumstances beyond his control.
4: We go on that mission, we
2: all get killed. That's what they want! That's what they want! Trini Lopez, as Jimenez, he's crawling with hate. All right, we're
0: live, and we're back in this nostalgic radio and cars you're tuned into, just in case you forgot. But, hey, you know what? Now it's time to introduce our special guest for the evening. Okay, let me tell you about this gentleman. Really fascinating guy. And, um... For a long time, he was a very well-known, very successful, very accomplished automotive photographer. But now, and like I said, he came from a long lineage of very, very fascinating people in the automotive industry. But today, it gives me great pleasure to welcome to the show this evening the president and CEO of Justice Brothers, Ed Justice Jr. Je- uh, Ed, are you there?
3: I'm here. I'm here. G- great to be here, too. How you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. I, I really uh, appreciate the fact I get to come on the, your show with you today and get a chance to talk.
0: Well, super. So what would you think of that little clip? I know you sent me uh, your your info there, and you said you liked Lee Marvin and you liked uh, James Coburn. Well, so I got a little skit there from uh, Dirty Dozen, which was a great movie back in the day.
3: All right, you know what? it it honestly i didn't uh, put it on my list of favorite films but it was one of my favorite films for sure and you know what i think that was really appropriate considering this is the 68th anniversary of d day also
0: oh that's right you're right absolutely and you know what that's when it just seemed like when when those movies were done back in the 50s and 60s america meant something which is you know and i and i know i don't keep the show i don't really get political too often but you know really we need to get America back on track, and America needs to be number one again, don't you think?
3: Oh, I, I absolutely agree. I mean, I, uh, when you say America meant something back then, I, it still does. And I know where you're coming from. I know what you mean by that. Mm-hmm. But to so many of us, it still does. America means everything that it ever did to me. I mean, both my father and my father-in-law were World War II veterans. Uh, my dad was in the Eighth Air Force in Europe and uh, did that whole thing over there and my father-in-law was a fourth division marine who did uh, four beach landings down in the south pacific the last of them being iwo jima and uh, to survive one beach landing is a big thing to survive four of them and the last one being iwo jima's that's when you know god is definitely on your side and uh although god was on the side of a lot of the guys that unfortunately didn't make it but, you know, a little bit of luck and, uh, you know, as they say, the heroes were left back there on the sand.
0: And, uh, you know, this past Memorial Day, we, uh, our hearts all go out to there. So.
3: Right. At any
0: rate, so tell us, give us a little brief history about Justice Brothers and how it all began with uh, your uncle and your dad and uh, your grandfather and everybody and your mom who, your, and your grandmother and everybody who kind of inspired the whole thing, Right.
3: Yeah, well, you know, my my uh, my grandmother was uh, somewhat on my dad's uh, and uncle's side. They're actually my dad and two uncles, and uh, she was somewhat of a tomboy, and she got them sort of interested in the automobile and the you know the absolute beginnings of the automobile because they just happened to be born in that period of time, and they had a dream. My dad really had the big dream to move to California because he had really bought into the the blue skies and the palm trees and the Hollywood movie stars, and there was so much of the car industry, particularly racing, that was happening in California uh, around that time, pre-World War II and obviously also post-World War War II. And so he came out before World War II and uh, got a job for my one uncle, uh, who was uh, known as Zeke. His given name was Lawrence, but everybody called him Zeke. And he, Zeke got a job at Curtis Craft Race Car Shop, which was a, uh, you know, famous Indy car builder, et cetera. And he was the first employee for Frank Curtis. And my dad then later worked at Curtis Craft when he got discharged from World War II. And my other uncle was uh, paralyzed uh, from the waist down in an automobile wreck at, uh, I think it was about 19 years of age. And um, so... You know, they did the race car thing for a while, but uh, they realized that they just were not going to get rich, pound and metal, and they happened to get exposed to the oil uh, industry and uh, the additive industry. And, you know, they're really a sign of the American dream that is played out every day by people, and that is taking an idea, a lot of hard work, and ingenuity – and becoming a success and that's what america was founded on uh that's what we're known for and it still goes on today it's becoming tougher to do that today but but uh, it still can be done and they're, they're just one of those american success stories we moved down to florida in jacksonville florida not far from you and that's where i was born And uh, they had the uh, sales territory for Florida, Georgia, and Cuba, obviously Cuba pre-Castro. And uh, they did a great job and then eventually moved back out here to California. And, uh, you know, our products, the Justice Brothers additives, are sold around the world today. We manufacture our products for a lot of original equipment manufacturers uh, like Nissan, uh, BMW in China, uh, Ford in China, Mazda. Uh, God, you name it. And they're also sold through a lot of independent repair shops, car dealers. You won't find our products necessarily at the Pep Boys or AutoZones because we're more of a professional brand. And the, way, the easiest way to compare it is if your wife or girlfriend or significant other goes into a salon, they'll find shampoos in there that you won't find at the local drugstore. And that's, that's sort of the way Justice Brothers products are.
0: Now, you'd mentioned that it started with an oil additive. Um, tell us exactly, and I was curious, too, what exactly is, was the additive, and, and, and how did it work?
3: Well, the, the original product that they sold, they were the first distributors for a product by the name of Wynn's Friction Proofing Oil. And they, uh, when they did that, one of their first customers in Florida, just by serendipity, happened to be a guy by the name of Bill France. Uh-huh. Bill France owned Amaco Station, and uh, he was driving a stock car. And you understand, stock car racing was very disorganized at this point in time. And that's how Bill France, you know, did his deal, is he created NASCAR, which was, the name was coined by a fellow by the name of Red Vote, who was the superstar mechanic, first one, before Smokey Eunuch, And in fact, Smokey had a lot of admiration for Red Vote, and Red Vote was uh, out of Atlanta, Georgia, had a 24-hour garage up there. And when they had that meeting at the uh, Streamline Hotel in in, uh, Daytona Beach, uh, my uncle attended that meeting, and Red Vote came up with the NASCAR name. And next thing you know, NASCAR, that was in the tail end of 1947. And so my dad and uncles were the first uh, sponsors in NASCAR, and all those wins, uh, you know, they called it the bullseye circle uh, that were on the stock cars. My dad or one of my uncles put those literally themselves on those cars. I mean, Lee Petty, Buck Baker, um, Fireball Roberts, Curtis Turner, the Flying Flocks, who were the original superstars in NASCAR. Uh, all those guys were their their friends and also uh, who they sponsored.
0: Now, so that was basically, When you say friction additive, so in other words, it was a, it wasn't like the uh, JB. 80 or what was it no, so, well,
3: jb80 yeah which is a spray lubricant no this was an actual engine oil additive okay which some people you know they they go under different names engine treatments mm-hmm. uh oil treatments you know engine tune-up we make an engine tune-up that's an engine uh uh friction reducer there's a lot of different names that they go by but it's basically a friction reducer ours uh you know that you know i mean i'm not just getting paid to say this because my name's on the can or but ours outperforms the competition i mean you got to have a competitive edge it's like uh, you know a, a bmw will outperform uh, a yugo when it comes to handling and a number of other cars you know so uh it's the engine oil additives uh and so from that then they branched out into gas additives and they invented the first transmission stop leak in 1952 there was never a transmission stop leak on the market, and they happened to uh, come up with this by working with a lot of the people that were less fortunate uh, in parts of their territory, and uh, you know, then everybody copied it, and now you know everybody's got a transmission stop leak. Some you know, sixty odd years later.
0: The original oil additive that you're talking about um, was it Teflon based back then, or what did they, what no. Did they use?
3: No, the Teflon based additives actually came out. Oh gosh uh, about the seventies the okay. late seventies early eighties and you know it's funny uh DuPont uh, sent out a uh, a press release and I have it the directive we've got it in the files out here advising people not to use Teflon additives uh, they were very much against it, and then the market got really big and then all of a sudden they didn't say they didn't advise it anymore but you know what's the first thing they tell you to do when you get a Teflon coated frying pan. Don't use a metal spatula. Use wood or plastic. Why? Because it'll scratch the Teflon off the surface. Well, that's a baked on surface. And the Teflon additives, uh, I guess you could say I'm not a believer in them. If I did believe in them, we'd have one uh, because it's available technology. But, uh, you know, you pour it in your car and it's not even baked on. And, you know, you don't really see that much of them anymore, to be honest with you. Uh, they use Teflon buttons. They did at one time. They, there were little button inserts and pistons in uh, top fuel cars, you know, the nitro-powered cars. And when the Teflon button would get to certain temperature, it would uh, score the uh, cylinder wall. And uh, so, anyway, I'm not a big believer in Teflon additives,
0: so what did they use? Was it like a graphite lubricant or something like that? I mean, obviously... It no, it
3: was, a different, it was a different thing back then. Uh, it wasn't graphite. Uh, graphite is, you know, I mean, that's, a, that's another thing that people have used. The problem with graphite, though, is it's not as a small a molecule okay. as what we use uh, today or what they used back then. And it, the other really negative thing about it, particularly in those days, is it turns your oil black right away. Okay, and uh, people, you know, particularly back then, uh, they would change their oil by how it looked. Mm-hmm. You know, once it got to a real dark color, they go, "Hey, it's time for an oil change." And uh, you know, graphite. You know, Arco came out with the motor oil. You might remember Arco Graphite uh, back in the seventies, late seventies, and it it laid a big egg. It just, you know, it's it's so black. If you had an oil leak. <laughs> You
4: know,
3: <laughs> oil leaks not good to start with, but when it you're dropping out graphite, it stains your driveway if you've got a cement driveway, it stains your driveway if you have got an asphalt driveway. It's just it's a mess. Hmm.
0: Now the the stuff that they add and I know you don't have to reveal your secret. I mean, I understand that. But was, you don't it,
3: have to worry about that. I won't.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay. But it basically does it does it play around with the viscosity of the oil at all or anything like no. that? I mean, no.
3: No. Okay. You don't you don't We have products that will change the viscosity of the oil, but it states that. uh, And they're made for a specific purpose, like when a car gets old and worn out. Uh, Generally, you do want to increase the viscosity of the oil so you don't have any oil burning. Uh, It'll quiet the engine down, gives a little bit more of a cushion. But no, our straight, uh, everyday-use-type oil additives do not change the viscosity. Uh, They go in one can to five quarts. And uh, they use, you know, this, uh, like, microtechnology uh, to go in there and actually penetrate the pores of the metal. Treats the metal, not the oil, which is a, a trademark of ours. And it will wear out if you change your oil, but it'll take, you know, a couple thousand miles before it totally wears out. Uh, so, you know, we recommend that you use it with every oil change. But it actually does go into the, uh, the pores of the metal and it doesn't change any of the characteristics about motor oil. There's, you know, there's a lot of wives' tales and misinformation about motor oil out there, uh, to be totally honest. Uh, I've talked to many, you know, in my life, of course, with our research and all, and and, uh, when I was, uh, you know, doing a number of interviews like this on uh, my radio show for Road & Track Magazine, I had some of the top oil engineers from the top oil companies, and I always would use them to, you know, educate the people on these fallacies. One is, let's say you're out and you got four quarts of oil and you're down a quart and you run, you know, some expensive synthetic motor oil, but all they've got is a cheap mineral based oil. Well, what do you do? Well, you buy it and you put it in. Because you see, the bottom line is the other four quarts. It's not like they're going to be unfriendly to that other quart that's coming in there and put them off into one side of the engine and say, you know what, we don't mix with your type. Uh, it, it, they don't know the difference. What you're going to end up with, if you used you know, extra, you know, half the quarts of synthetic and half the quarts of mineral oil or traditional motor oil, as some people might know it, you're going to end up with a semi-synthetic, which, of course, you can buy something like that. And that's what it is. And that's why it costs less, because it's not 100% synthetic. You could actually run every one of the five quarts a different brand and a different type of motor oil, provided they're all the same grade, you know, 5, W30, etc. for your car that the manufacturer recommends. And most people, they get, they get afraid about that. But it really, it's not going to do anything. Uh,
0: Andy Granatelli, he had STP. Okay, remember the motor honey, motor oil? Compare his product. Let's say to your product or a comparable product that you have, and then tell us a little bit about your relationship with Andy Granitelli.
3: Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, yeah, Andy Granitelli, of course, did a fantastic job selling STP, uh, and it was known as a oil treatment. We make an oil treatment, Justice Brothers oil treatment. Ours is a little bit thinner than STP. STP used to use uh, uh, chemistry that was ZDDP, uh, you know, which is what they just removed out of motor oils. And uh, because it would foul catalytic converters, et cetera, it wasn't good with some of the uh, environmental uh, systems on cars. Uh, ZDDP is great product, okay, but, you know, it's gone, and uh, that's just sort of the way it is. Our technology is better than ZDDP was, and it doesn't have any of the negative environmental problems that ZDDP had or has uh, so you know we have an oil treatment uh, like I say and we we generally recommend a lot of people will use that for new cars depends on uh, what you're uh, what you're uh, you know driving et cetera but uh, it's also great for older cars that are burning oil or uh, are having a lot of engine knock noise et cetera you know the parts are getting a little bit loose and uh, the product actually will work very well and some wonders on an older vehicle that maybe, you know, really needs to be repaired or it's getting a little bit long in in the tooth, as they say, but it'll help prolong it. I got a testimonial in here today, for a matter of fact. A guy's coming up to 400,000 miles on a car and been using our additives, and uh, he thought he was going to rebuild it at 150,000. Then he thought, well, okay, 200,000. It started becoming a game with his engine rebuilder, and they said, well, okay, let's see what we can go 250.000. Well, he went 250, and then 300, and then 350, and he says, at 400, I am absolutely going to build the engine, he said, I think. And so, you know, we'll see what happens. But anyway, back on STP and Andy Granatelli. Andy Granatelli and his brothers, Joe and Vince, uh, Joe has since passed away, and and only Vince and Andy are are alive now, uh, came out of the Chicago area. They had a company called Grand Corps, uh, and it was Granatelli Corporation. In 1952, they had a car that they had entered into the uh, Indianapolis 500. My dad and my uncles had already won the race as sponsors in 1950 with Johnny Parsons and Frank Curtis's car. So in, in 51, we sponsored Parsons again. He finished uh, second. And then in uh, fifty two we connected up with the Granatelli brothers. Uh, they had Jim Rathman as their driver. Jim, of course, uh, lived down there in Florida and was a very, very dear friend of ours. And most people that know the story of Jim Rathbun will realize his name was really Dick, and his brother's name was actually Jim. Uh, but they switched names, so I think it was Jim could drive because he wasn't 21. And they even though their driver's licenses always still had their real names, they went by each other's names the rest of their life. It's a it's sort of a funny story. So anyway, that was, uh, in 52 was the first... Uh, exposure that Andy Granatelli and his brothers had had to the additive business was through my dad and my uncles. And about 10 years later was when he connected in with uh, STP. It was owned by the Studebaker Corporation at that time, and they didn't really know what the heck to do with the product. And the Granatelli brothers had the Paxton uh, supercharger, and Studebaker was trying to sell the Avante car, and they needed more horsepower, so they got the Paxton supercharger on it. And that's how Andy became familiar with the corporation. And next thing you know, uh, he worked it out with them for him to be president of STP and the rest is history.
0: I'll be um, Radio, you mentioned radio a little earlier. Tell us a little bit about your radio involvement.
3: Well, you know, I, I've done radio for over uh, 10 years, uh, and I did some... A political radio there for a while with a local congressman here, John Russo that was 14 years in the. US uh, Congress and uh, a great guy. Uh, had a really good reputation in the area here. And then I did some uh, race reports for uh, a motorsports report, uh, segments and bits that they would run uh, you know at certain times on the dial, you know and on the hour uh, on the show. And then I got connected up with uh, car and driver. Uh, did about uh, three plus years with Car and Driver as a co host. Then Road and Track offered me the uh, option of becoming the host of Road and Track Radio for Road and Track Magazine. I did that uh, right at about seven years, and now I'm back on Motor Trend and uh, co hosting on Motor Trend with Alan Taylor.
0: Super. Okay. Yeah, by the way, if you see Alan, tell him I said hi. Uh, I sure will. And then, okay, now before that. You had a very, very interesting automotive photography career there for a while. Tell us a little bit about that, and tell us some of the most fascinating stories that you've got, I mean, with some of the drivers.
3: Well, you know, I, I, when I was growing up, my dad was a real photo nut. Um, he, my grandfather was an auctioneer in uh, the Kansas City area, in the horse and mule market, and he also auctioned off farms and that type of stuff. And so my dad and my uncles and my aunts all grew up under that auctioneer uh, lifestyle of, you know, uh, showmanship, basically. And so being an auctioneer, he was one of the few guys in town that had a camera. Cameras were really, really special back, you know, a couple generations ago. Not everybody had one like today where you buy a phone and you get a camera free, you know. Uh, so they would use my grandfather's camera provided they bought the film. He'd say, you can use my camera, boys, but you've got to buy the film. So they'd scrounge up some money and buy some film. And uh, because of that, I have an incredible archive of early pictures of their early childhood that most people don't have. So when I was growing up, my dad really encouraged me to get interested in photography. He had shot thousands of pictures when he was overseas during the war, uh, getting film from the supply sergeant and getting photo paper, and he learned how to develop them himself and all that. And I've got, oh, God, I don't know how many albums of World War II European theater pictures that are just phenomenal, planes and bombed-out buildings and stuff. It's unbelievable history. So with that, you know, I mean, I had this, this uh, artistic side to me. Uh, I, I love to draw, to cartoon, to illustrate all that. I wanted to be a sign painter at one time in my life. I worked this whole summer with a sign painter, and at the end of the summer, I don't know whether my dad paid him to say this or not. I never, I never found out for sure, but he said, whatever you do, you don't want to do this for your life, because you can sit out at an art table and be a fine artist and get paid more than I do, and it was true. It was true, and uh, good, good advice, uh, so I said, well, okay, I'm not going to be a sign painter. Well, photography was sort of an extension of that, And so it allowed me to go out and shoot pictures and meet people. I got my first camera at 12. Uh, By the age of 14, believe it or not, uh, I was actually selling pictures to the automotive magazines out here on the West Coast, the Hot Rod, the Car Craft, the Drag Racing USA, uh, and others. And uh, I didn't have a driver's license, so I had to rely on my dad or one of my uncles or somebody else to drive me to the racetrack. Uh, I was... Getting legitimate photo passes and uh, was recognized as the real deal at 14. And uh, I shot for a long, long time. And, uh, you know, I've just recently got those photos out and they've been published in a number of different books The Snake versus Mongoose, uh, you know, how a drag racing rivalry changed the sport. Uh, I've got a lot of photography in that book that was written by Tom Madigan. I've got a lot of photography in the birth of top fuel drag racing. It's called Fuel and Guts. Um, I, I uh, published a book uh, on the Crisman family last year. I shot the cover for that. So anyway, interesting stories. Let me think. God, there's so many. Uh, you know, I'll tell you an interesting story. Uh, A.J. Foyt, who's a very dear friend of uh, my dad and mine, uh, we, his father was also a very good friend of ours, Tony Foyt. And Tony passed away, so we flew down to Houston to go to his funeral. And, uh, you know, I didn't take a camera. I mean, you know, I think for most people, the last thing you do uh, when you're going to a funeral is take a camera. Uh, It's just not necessarily a tasteful thing to be snapping pictures. You know, I mean, it's just like, uh, you know, we're supposed to be here to pay our respects and not to, uh, you know, cover it as an event. And uh, so the night before we were out at A.J.'s house, in Houston, Texas there there were about 8 of us and my dad and I were 2 of the 8 and uh just close friends and, and he, he looked at me and you know knowing about my photography because i had shot a lot of pictures for him on the race team he said uh would you shoot pictures of my dad's uh service tomorrow the you know the whole funeral and I said yeah I'd be happy to but I said I didn't bring a camera and he said hey, no problem I got a camera we'll go get a camera and and uh then if you would shoot pictures for me. So we go down uh, the hall in his house, and uh, he's since moved from this house, but it's a beautiful home. And he went into a closet and opened up a secret door. I mean, it was really like something right out of the movies. And you'd never know this was there. And when he opened up this door, here was this pretty sizable room that was full of silver trophies that he had won and, uh, and lots of stuff that he had been given. And there were lots of cameras in there. And I'm talking in the box. It looked like the back room at a photo store. And so he goes, well, here, pick one of these and you can use it. Well, you know, being a photographer, I really didn't care what camera I used. It was more what lenses do you have for a particular camera. So I said, well, let's see what lenses you have here and picked out a lens. And then we found the camera to go with that. I you know I had never shot this particular camera, and this is when automatic settings were starting to come in I mean I'm traditionally trained you know I mean shoot cameras on manual light meter you know I mean like the real deal photography, you know the way it used to be and so the next morning uh before we went to the funeral, we ran down to a photo store to have the guy to check me out on this camera so that I knew this you know how this thing worked because you know it was basically auto but you know, there's lots of auto settings on these cameras. And so anyway, that day I shot the uh, the funeral, and at the end of the funeral, I took all the film, and I handed him all the film, and I said, here, here's everything I shot. You can go ahead and get it developed. And the reason why I did that is because if there were any pictures that got out of his dad's funeral in some distasteful way, I wanted to make sure that he knew that it wasn't me uh, because I gave him all the film. So that was a that was an interesting experience. You know, I always thought that day, I hope everybody that was there realized that he wanted me to shoot pictures, because some of them probably thought, you know, who is this guy shooting all these pictures of everybody at this funeral? I mean, come on, this is really poor taste.
0: Mm-hmm. How about at racing events? How about some memorable shots with some drivers?
3: Well, I'll tell you one that really always sticks in my mind, and he's a good friend. And uh, when I shot this, uh, you know, he didn't know me from Adam, but I knew him because he was a legend, and that's Dan Gurney. Uh, When I was 15 years old, uh, at the Ontario 500, it was 1970, and uh, this was going to be his last Indy car race. And I walked up to him. You know, I had a couple cameras hanging on me, and but I'm still I'm a 15 year old kid, and this guy's a legend. At the end of his Indy driving career, had already done you know Formula One and all that other stuff, the Cobras and and all that. And I walked up and I said, "Uh, you know, Mister Gurney. Uh, Would you mind squatting down next to the car and and letting me shoot a picture of you? And uh, he said, yeah, no problem. Takes his helmet off and and squats down, and I shoot this picture. And it's one of my favorite photographs because it just says so much about then and now. And the thing is, he took off his helmet. His hair's all messed up. His his hands were dirty from working on the car. Uh, He squats down. And there was no public relations people involved. And can I get a picture of the driver? Yeah, at twelve oh one, I get my you know five seconds with him. Okay, great. I mean, this is the way it used to be, and the photography was better because it was spontaneous. It was more journalistic. Now it's more like studio photography at the racetrack, and uh, I, I just love that shot. Dan used it. Uh, for quite a while for his fan club. And uh, it just, to me, it just captures the essence of what motorsports photography is supposed to be.
0: Backing up a little bit to uh, somebody in Florida, uh, Don Garlis. You sponsored Don Garlis there for a long time, didn't you?
3: Yeah, we were his first paid sponsor, my dad and my uncles, absolutely. Uh, Don, uh, you know, funny story is when we were in Florida, they never sponsored him. And then when we came out to California and this hot shoe from Florida came out here and my dad said to my Uncle Zeke, Zeke, who is this guy from Florida, Don Garlitz? I mean, we never never heard of the guy when we were down there. Well, you know, it was just by chance they never heard of him. And uh, he was just getting started, too. And so my Uncle Zeke went out to meet up with him at Fontana Drag Strip, uh, which is no longer around. And uh, that night... Uh, cut a deal to be a sponsor. In fact, there's a one of the old drag news uh, newspapers. There's a cover shot of Don standing in front of his dragster, and, and right behind him is one of our delivery station wagons. You can see Justice Brothers right on the door. So uh, yeah, he's, he's a legend. Don Garlis is a legend, no, no doubt about it. There's a handful of motor racing legends and, and all different forms of motor racing, and he's truly one of them.
0: Now, we got about uh, five or six minutes left. It's interesting, you grew up in Florida because you were born here, but I was actually raised out in California. So I'm from Northern California. It's kind of interesting. Now I'm in Florida and you're in California. But when we grew up in California... Nobody acknowledged Florida. We didn't, I mean, as far as we're concerned, the end of California, Nevada border, that was it. Nothing else existed, particularly in, in, the, in the in the car world, you know, race cars, sports cars, hot rods and stuff like that. So now you haven't come from Florida, then you go to California, then you bump into a guy like Don Garlis, who comes over there and really shows the boys in California a thing or two. What's your take on that?
3: in which way?
0: Well, I mean, like, what do you, I mean, your perspective, you know, when a lot of these guys from, from other parts of the country coming out to California, which was really the hotbed, I mean, where everything just kind of okay, like, I,
3: I follow what you're saying. Okay. Yeah. You know, my perspective is look at, there were good racers all over the U.S. I mean, yes, California was, was a real hotbed because we were lucky. We have the weather we can drive year round out here, but you know, Florida's not too bad for most of the year. I mean, you, you have these things called hurricanes and some pretty <laughs> good rainstorms and, you know, a little bit of disruption there occasionally that we don't have to deal with. But, I mean, there were guys from the Northeast, and, you know, Garlitz was just – he he's a very resourceful guy, and I think that was the bottom line. Most people don't know that he actually started out driving stock cars. And he didn't like it because he didn't like the fact that you beat the car up so bad you had to repair it every week. And when somebody told him about a new form of uh, racing down on an airstrip where you run side-by-side side and the car doesn't get beat up, he thought, hey, I've got to go check this out, and that's how the history started. And uh, so, you know, he came out here, and I mean, there was a guy out here on the coast that was clearly give him a good run for his money. Uh, one of them was Art Chrisman in and, and The Hustler. And uh, that rivalry still goes on today. I mean, they're friends and have a lot of respect for each other, but they still, I tell you, you know, it just shows it never dies for these guys. They're competitors. But, yeah, regardless, you know, it was good. It was good for the sport to have somebody come in from somewhere else and uh, and be the hot shoe because it helped bring crowds out. Hey, let's see, this guy from Florida, I wonder if this guy can beat him. God, that guy just ran a new record. You know, I mean, it, it. That type of stuff is really good for the sport, and that's partially sort of what we've lost today. Uh, we don't have a lot of that excitement and that sort of mystery. Mm-hmm. Today, it's it's become a little plain vanilla compared to the way it used to be.
0: Yeah, it's unfortunate. Okay, we got a couple minutes left. Talk about the uh, the Justice Brothers Museum. You have a motorsport museum in your uh, at your facility in California.
3: Yeah, we sure do, and everybody's invited if they ever come out. They can find out information, a little bit of information, but our address at our website at Justice Brothers. That's brothers, B-R-O-T-H-E-R-S dot com, Justice Brothers spelled out dot com. We've got about 120-plus cars in the museum. It's something that my dad and I started in, in 1985 just sort of for fun, and it's sort of grown way beyond what our original plans were. Uh, You know, I jokingly say it's an addiction that uh, is curable by uh, death, Uh, but, you know, I mean, it's, you know, Americans are collectors, and, and, uh, you know, we just happen to collect cars, and we've got all sorts of race cars, uh, some vintage street cars, uh, we've got the... uh, the spacecraft that was the daughter's car out of the movie Spaceballs that was built by a good friend of ours, Dean Jeffries. Okay. Um, we've got some Roth cars. Uh, I've got a replica of the first NASCAR champion from 1948 that won the first race on, on Daytona Beach for NASCAR uh, that we happen to sponsor. Uh, it's all sorts of fun stuff. and we had, In fact, we had about 20 Hot Rodders from Tokyo, Japan in here yesterday, uh, dressed just like they live here in the States with the ball caps and the jeans and the same type of shoes and all. And they're over here for a couple weeks, and uh, we happen to be on the list. So it's, it's a lot of fun. It's 100% free. Uh, we, not, we don't make any money. It costs me a lot of money to do this, but it's a passion, and, and uh, you know, we enjoy sharing it with people.
0: That's super. Now, your products, if people want to buy your products real quick, we've got about a minute left. If they want to get a hold of your products, how do they go about doing that?
3: Best way is go to our website. And at our website, you can uh, contact us uh, through email. And uh, you can read about the products. They're currently upgrading uh, the website. We've got a beautiful new website that's going to be coming up in the next few weeks. Uh, but we've got some t-shirts and other stuff online. But they can email us about the products. We'll answer any question. We've got a team of people here. And and we can help you out to make sure that you are taken care of as far as buying the product. The, the public can buy it. It's used primarily by professionals or professional quality and professional grade products, but they are available to the public.
0: Wow, that's super. Well, Ed, I want to thank you for coming on the show, and I'm sure if I asked you to come on again, you would, would you?
3: I'd love to. Okay, yeah, Absolutely. Well, I, I love radio, obviously, and uh, I have I an have obvious tie to Florida, uh, for sure. And I've uh, really enjoyed and, and appreciate the time.
0: Super. Okay, hey, don't go away. Uh, I'm going to do my uh, closeout here, but I want to catch you on the phone here in a second. But anybody else, I want to thank everybody for tuning in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. My guest this evening was Ed Justice, Jr., president and CEO of Justice Brothers. Okay? In the meantime, everybody stay safe, drive carefully, love your family, and tune in next week to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. And be sure to check out our website, GulfstreamMotorsports.com, our podcast, which is Nostalgic Radio and Cars. We'll see you next week or at some of the car shows. Take care.